thank you, Trish. Hearing a, a good chunk of scripture is great, isn't it? Uh, and uh, basically two chapters. Uh, that was wonderful. Thank you. We're going to... Um, there's another week where we're going to have a good chunk of scripture as well, so brace yourself if you need to. <laughs> well, today is Advent Sunday. Uh, Advent is an unusual word, isn't it? For us as people who live in church land, um, Advent is a season within uh, the church's cycle. It's the four weeks before Christmas. But Advent is not just a season of time. It also has incredible significance. Significance for who we are as Christians... Uh, but also for what we are about as Christians, who we are and what we are about. The word Advent itself uh, comes from the Latin. Uh, ad means to, and venere means come, so Advent is to come. It's to come. So Advent, Adventus, is all about arrival. It's about the arrival of someone or something important. And in Christian theology, it's about the first coming of Christ. But it's not only about that, it's also about the second coming of Christ. It's about his arrival at Bethlehem, but also his arrival as judge when he comes again. Advent. We wait for Christ's return with great expectancy, don't we? We don't know the day or the hour, but we are confident that he will come back. Uh, and as we wait for Christ's return, we need to prepare ourselves to meet him. It's that simple. It's that not simple. <laughs> but the problem with preparing ourselves to meet him is that we are surrounded by so many people, in fact, we're surrounded by a world that is unaware of the truth of his first coming, let alone that there's going to be a second coming. Did you know that in uh, the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to Christ's second coming? That average is about one every 30 verses. Do you think it's important? <laughs> and of the 23, uh, 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the second coming, the four books that don't, uh, three of them are single chapter letters to particular people about a particular topic, which isn't the second coming. There's only one major prophecy in the Bible that has yet to be fulfilled. The return of Jesus. And the motivation for every Christian rests on that certainty, on that certain hope. Knowing that Jesus will come again gives us hope. Now, over these four weeks, we're going to be looking at what the prophet Isaiah says about the coming of Jesus. As he longs for things to be different while he obeys the Lord's call on his life. So I want to take just a quick look at the background of the prophet Isaiah. Here's a little bit about the person. Isaiah was the son of Amos, not Amos, the other prophet, but Amos. And it's thought that he had noble descent, possibly 
with royal roots according to Jewish tradition, but we can't be sure of that. Now, in about the year 740 BC, he was called to be a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a contemporary with Micah, and hopefully you'll remember that Micah was all about justice, uh, and both were called to prophesy to the southern kingdom. Now, let's, let's put this in a broader context as well. When the people of Israel first asked for a king, God gave them Saul. There was one kingdom under Saul, followed by David, followed by Solomon. And those three kings with one kingdom, uh, that spanned about 120 years. Then Solomon's two sons decided to fight together over who should uh, take over from dad. Uh, That wasn't good. Uh, The kingdom split. Israel in the north under Jeroboam and Judah in the south under Rehoboam and neither of whom were good kings. So the split kingdom didn't start well at all. Now, way back when I was first um, studying, when I first started studying all this, The way I remembered which kingdom was which was by knowing the alphabet. I'm a pretty simple person and um, I I just need some basic help to remember things. It's got to be easy for me to remember. I comes before J in the alphabet, right? A, B, C, D, F, G, H. I, J. And in my brain, that tells me that Israel is in the north and Judah is in the south. North, south, Israel, Judah, IJ. So if that's helpful to you, you can steal my method. It, it was many years ago that that dawned on me and now it's stuck in my brain so I know Israel's the north, Judah is the south. Now when Isaiah is called to prophesy, there had already been 10 kings in Judah uh, covering about 200 years. Uzziah, King Uzziah was the 10th in the long line. And Isaiah was called to prophesy in the year that King Uzziah died. God had been giving him visions and insight before that, and that's basically the first five chapters. Uh, But when Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah was actually sent out to work. Now, King Uzziah dying was pretty significant for the whole nation because under him who was mostly, he was mostly an okay king, you know, thumbs up, mostly, there'd been a period of about 50 years of stability and prosperity under Uzziah. And that's always good for a nation, isn't it? But it had been declining under Uzziah. And then when he died, uh, things got worse. Uh, He hadn't disciplined the people for not worshipping other gods as well as the God of Israel. All the high places of sacrifice were still there and being used. Uh, so the, the country had been in decline. And uh, but now part of that was to do with Uzziah, but also part of it was that the surrounding nations were going through a period of weakness. So they weren't attacking. So that's also always good for a nation if your neighbour's not attacking you. You can have a time of stability. During Isaiah's prophecy in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom fell under attack of Assyria. They were overtaken uh, into exile, gone. Gone. 
And Isaiah's job was to alert Judah, the southern kingdom, to God's coming judgment on them, that they too would suffer the same fate if repentance wasn't forthcoming. So that's what Isaiah had to do. Now, just a little bit about the writings of this prophet. 66 chapters, it's a big book. And it's split basically into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 39. And that's basically all about judgment. So it's, an, it's not the pretty chapters. We're going to be in those chapters for the first couple of weeks. The second half is from chapters 40 to 66. And uh, those are words of comfort and forgiveness and hope. And we're going to be spending the last two weeks of Advent in that section. And in that section, more than any other, it looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. And Isaiah as a whole speaks more about the coming Messiah than any other prophet in the Old Testament. And prophecy, you need to remember that prophecy in the Bible is as much about politics as it was about personal piety uh, or predicting the future. Israel as a people, well, they'd been called into a covenant relationship with God, with worship that was right, with conduct that was right, and relationships that were right. They were the hallmarks of this covenant relationship. And Israel, uh, Isaiah's words are strident, and they come down the centuries to us. This nation of Israel had to wait a long time for their Messiah. And we too are waiting a long time, aren't we, for the uh, longing for God's rule to finally be complete. We're waiting. So let's see what Isaiah 6 and 7 are actually saying. Now, Uzziah ascended the throne at the ripe old age of 16. He started young. And he reigned for 52 years. And here's the year that he died. Isaiah was in the temple. It's, I hope your imagination just takes over as you read this uh, image that Isaiah shares with us as he tries to describe what it's like being in the temple and seeing the Lord. He uses language of royalty and wonder and awe. But there's a problem using the language of majesty and power and glory and seeing the Lord. There's a problem associated with that and Isaiah sees it fairly quickly because the problem is that he instantly recognises his own sinfulness. It's instant. And, and the sinfulness of the people. His response to God is quite marvellous, isn't it? He hesitates. He resists because of his own unworthiness. But this unworthiness then translates into a complete and utter willingness to go into God's service. Despite the weaknesses, he submits to going into God's service. And don't you love verse 8? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You notice we didn't stop there? So often, when you read Isaiah 6, 
you stop there. Here am I. Send me. But did you notice what comes next? I'm thinking that Isaiah may have spoken just a tad too soon. Just a little bit. Because God then chimes in and says, thanks. You've got to tell people in such a way that they're going to close their hearts to the message that you've got for them. Make their hearts look calloused. They're never going to listen to you. It's all bad news for them and it's bad news for you because they're not going to respond. Now I can just imagine Isaiah being stopped in his tracks, completely confused. You've just asked me to do something. I have enthusiastically said yes, but now you're telling me that it's a failed mission from the start? Can I, can I rethink my answer? I mean, that's what I'd be thinking. And then Isaiah says to God, well, how long do I have to be doing this? How long? And God basically says, uh, for a very long time until things are fully rotten. <laughs> for a very long time. But it's too late for Isaiah to back out because he's already said, pick me. But who is this God that Isaiah serves? Who is this God? At the end of chapter 6 and then into chapter 7, what do we find? Did you pick it up? We find grace. At the end of chapter 6, we have a seed that will be a stump in the land. God is saying the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And at the beginning of chapter 7, yes, there's more prophetic judgment as uh, Isaiah has to give the bad news of attacks from the surrounding nations. God wants to spare them. God is saying, this isn't going to happen if you stand firm. But God can see that if they keep going as they are, they won't be able to withstand these attacks. God, through Isaiah, is already saying, stand firm in your faith, and with God we'll overcome these nations. It's even as if God is begging this new king, Ahaz, to ask him to show what's going to happen. God is saying, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign. But the king refuses to engage with God. He won't ask for a sign. He just won't. But God is so keen to show his graciousness in all of this that he says through Isaiah, you're trying the patience of humans, you're trying the patience of God. If you refuse to ask for a sign, you're getting one anyway. That's what he says. You're getting one anyway. It's, like, it's as if God is saying to the nation, I'm so determined to save you Here's the sign you don't want. I'll give you a baby who's going to do what you're not doing. This baby is Emmanuel. He will know the difference between right and wrong even before he knows right and wrong. He'll be eating curds and whey when he knows what is right and what is wrong. God provides a miraculous salvation from their enemies... And there's no reason to believe that the prophecy wasn't fulfilled there and then 
with some child who was born. We never really know. But there's no reason to not believe that that prophecy was filled in that time as well as the ultimate fulfilment. And that's where Matthew answers the question for us. There is no doubt that Jesus fulfills this prophecy in the utmost way. God is truly with us, God in human form, to rescue all humanity. Jesus means saviour, Matthew tells us. And here Isaiah is quoted by Matthew saying that it is a direct fulfilment of Isaiah 7. That Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is the Emmanuel. God is with us in the face of a saviour. In just the same way that Israel needed saving, we too, the world today, needs a saviour. In 740 BC, God impacted the world of Israel, pointing out their sin and providing a rescue plan. And did you notice there too in Isaiah? It's the first time. It's not this whole keep calm and do not be afraid. It's not just on the mugs of the 21st century. It's there in Isaiah. Keep calm and do not be afraid. It's nothing new. It's from Isaiah. In 740 BC, God impacted the world of Israel. He pointed out their sin and he provided a rescue plan. 700 years later, just a short 2,000 years ago, God entered the world of Israel again in the form of a baby who grew up to be the sinless one, fulfilling Isaiah's prediction He will still be eating curds and honey when he's rejecting the wrong and choosing the right. From infancy, he knows his calling. And now God enters your world. God enters my world, my heart, your heart, in the form of a crucified and risen one, offering forgiveness and the incredible gift of grace which transforms our nature. Will we put our trust in the God who saves? Will you put your trust in the God who saves? It's a long longing, but it's a longing fulfilled. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled both then and now. Thank you for the faith that waits. Thank you that you waited, that you saw the need of this world and that you came at the right time and brought grace. Thank you, God, that you saw the need that Israel had in the year that King Uzziah died and that you used Isaiah to bring your word to them. But thank you, Lord, most of all, that it's also a word for us, that you sent Jesus to be Emmanuel, truly God with us. Thank you that in this Advent time we can learn more about waiting. And we long, Lord Jesus, for your anticipated return. We can't wait 
But we do wait. We long, as Isaiah longed, for your great and powerful re-entrance into this world. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.